just what the death and resurrection of Jesus means, just what happened, has been debated from the earliest times, which is why I think in the Gospels there are very different accounts of what was seen, what was experienced. Some seem like resuscitated bodies, others seem like a different kind of body that Jesus had and so could pass through walls or be not recognised and then recognised. Clearly, it's not simply about taking a picture as if with a mobile phone and recording what happened as a fact. And in fact, when the resurrection is presented as literal, the disciples find it terrifying or bemusing. The literal clearly veils what this might mean. And so I think it's pushing for a transformation. Easter is nothing if it's not participating in the death and resurrection, seeing the world in a completely different light. And this is why William Blake is quite clear that the death and resurrection of Jesus, Easter, is neither about a miracle nor is it a mystery. The second thought there that it's not a mystery is perhaps even more interesting than the first. But first of all, it's not a miracle because that makes the resurrection a dead fact. I recently heard actually the Archbishop of Canterbury talking about the resurrection and saying that if the body of Jesus was found, then he would have to cease being a Christian. And I thought, how tragic that is. This is reducing Christianity to a kind of science. It makes it very fragile, as if you can't know anything about resurrection life first. You have to prove that somehow it happened once 2,000 years ago and then grip on, hold on to it. But if it's not a miracle, a one-off in history that subsequent Christians are somehow supposed to cling on to for dear life, it's neither a mystery, Blake thinks. And by mystery, he means, in the more straightforward sense of mystery, that which seems obscure, opaque, difficult to believe. You have to hold on to the resurrection as mystery in a parallel way to the resurrection as miracle, just hoping against hope that somehow it makes sense. Not understanding, but just gripping onto its presumed promise. Miracle and mystery both lead to the same need to possess it, to try to prove what happened. Um, I think in a way it's why the Crusaders wanted to seize the empty tomb, the presumed site of the empty tomb, off the Muslims. And today, why in Jerusalem, the squabbles about who owns the site. It's actually the opposite of knowing divine life. It completely secularizes and makes worldly the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, rather than it being seen as a pivotal moment into the kingdom of God that's within you, that's here, but often overlooked. 
you see the effects of these two models of Easter, particularly in the confusion amongst preachers and theologians today about the nature of the resurrection of the body, because it makes it a sort of conjuring trick with bones, as if somehow, in some way, that which we call flesh now is going to have to be brought back from the soil or back from the air if we're cremated. It makes a mockery of the resurrection, to my way of thinking. It's also quite clearly, I think, against Paul, the earliest writer on Easter, who's clear that what he calls the ensouled body, the animated body, the instinctive body that we do know most immediately now, how that's going to give way to what he calls a spiritual body, but that can also be felt within us now, as we'll come back to. So what did William Blake have to say about all this? How can he illuminate a better sense of Easter for today? Well, first of all, he nails what's mistaken. For example, he talks about how the church has nailed Jesus on the tree of mystery. And this is the rational, scientific, eurism, as he would put it, account of the resurrection, calling it a miracle, calling it a mystery, with the problem that it just lacks vision. And he writes, the ashes of mystery began to animate. They called it deism and natural religion. This is the effort to try and understand the resurrection through scientific means or as a strange intervention by God that's just got to be held onto by blind faith rather than revealing the divine reality now. Natural religion is belief in an objective account of Christianity rather than one that's subjective and first most intimately known. And that's fallen. It makes the vision just strange and mysterious because it doesn't know the eternal in human form. It doesn't know that God is all in all. It prevents the world being seen in a grain of sand or heaven in a wild flower. It also turns the resurrection into a kind of power play, particularly for priests. In his picture, 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. Blake shows how the gospel depicted in the four creatures that symbolise Mark, Matthew, Luke and John, becoming coloured like a deathly pallor. And the lamb who's been sacrificed almost disappears in this image. You have to look quite hard to see the lamb before the throne. And of course on the throne is Blake's image of Urizen, the deistic god with the ominous seven seals threatening humanity, not welcoming humanity into divine life. When the vegetable body, as Blake puts it, is all that's known, the spiritual body can't be seen. And so Christianity becomes just another version of worldly, secular life. It leads to what he calls deceitful religion, saying that what Christianity does is bridge the gulf between God and humanity. Rather than showing that there is no gulf, it leads to 
a fear of death. And it also leads to what he calls religion hid in war, when Christianity in particular blesses conflict between human beings, as we're seeing now in the Russian war in Ukraine, and as Blake knew in his own time when he lived in another European war, the Napoleonic Wars. It makes Christianity as bad or even terrifying news rather than seeing God. It says that your future is precarious, shaped by suffering, threatened by hell. And so as he writes in Vala, the four Zoas, the church sings, O thou poor human form, O thou poor child of woe, why dost thou wander away from Terza? Why me compel to bind thee if thou dost go away from me? I shall consume upon the rocks these fibres of thine eyes that used to wander in distant heavens. Away from me I have bound down with a hot iron these nostrils that expanded with delight in morning skies. I have bent downward with lead molten in my roaring furnaces. My soul is seven furnaces, incessant roars the bellows. Upon my terribly flaming heart, the molten metal runs in channels through my fiery limbs. O oh love, O oh pity, O oh pain, O oh the pangs, the bitter pangs of love's forsaken. This is a lack of vision and... The mention there of Terza will remind us of the poem from the Songs of Innocence and Experience called To Terza, where Jesus sees through this threatening, suffering, bad news and says precisely the opposite. The death of Jesus set me free. Then what have I to do with thee? So he offers a vision a sense of compassion and forgiveness and conveys the presence of eternity that enables a different way of engaging with Easter, not as an intervention, but as an unveiling of reality, not as a mystery, but as a vision. Blake is quite clear that he's a visionary. He sees and he aims to help us to see, to know, to participate in divine life. That being the true Jesus, the divine human, in which eternal life includes the reality of death, though now known as a giving, as a kindness, as a letting go of what's deluded, not as an ending that is otherwise somehow put off or transcended. This, in one way, is known in nature nature as the return to life, which is why Easter and spring are associated. Blake can see Eve awakening and the eternal garden, Eden, blooming again. In Vala, the four Zoas, Enion or Eros, passion, that upthrust of life, calls out, fear not, because she personified desire Enion can see the bridegroom coming she can see that the grave is where the lamb of god rends the veil of mystery we're like seeds she says looking for flower and fruit the product of our life and we can know hope in the universe and we can experience the gift of life blake writes 
A voice came in the night, a midnight cry upon the mountains. Awake, the bridegroom cometh. I awoke to sleep no more, but an eternal consummation is dark Enion. The watery grave, the Lamb of God has rent the veil of mystery, soon to return in clouds and fires around the rock and the mysterious tree. As the seed waits eagerly, watching for its flower and fruit, the eternal man is seen, is heard, is felt, and all his sorrows till he resumes his ancient bliss. It's a change of consciousness for we humans, much as it's a reaching for life amongst other creatures and beings. It's a cleansing of our perception, this awakening. And you see it particularly portrayed by Blake in his reflections on the relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. The picture of the Magdalene at the sepulchre is one of Blake's images of the moment of resurrection. And it's very fascinating that he painted it with Mary in the sepulchre, looking back at the resurrected Jesus behind her. The usual way to portray this moment is to paint Mary in the garden, reaching out to Jesus with Jesus saying, Noli me tangere, do not touch me. But instead, Blake paints Mary in a moment of uncertainty still, but it's a moment of bewilderment that's also a moment of transformation. Hence, Jesus's hands are open, beckoning. They're not preventing, as they are in the traditional portrayals of the do not touch me moment. He's outside the tomb, she is inside, but inside the tomb it's full of light from the angels, from the very atmosphere, as well as from Jesus. So this is not a single source, but is a visionary radiance that Mary is experiencing in the tomb, the presence of a different consciousness. And when Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? She becomes conscious of her sorrow and is able to turn to Jesus so that the energy of her sorrow is transformed into the energy of awakening. I think that Blake chooses not to portray the do not touch me moment because he wants to stress that Mary doesn't confuse Jesus as with a resuscitated corpse, as, as if it's a strange mystery or a miraculous moment. Precisely the opposite, she is turning from the sepulchre, which is the church's version of this religion of death. Jesus is fulfilling, in fact, what he promised earlier in John's Gospel. I will leave you not comfortless, I will come to you. Yet in a little while and the world seeth me no more, yet you see me, because I live, you also shall live. And on that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. This is to say that whilst Jesus leads, Mary is in the same transitional state as Jesus. She's participating in this moment, in the resurrection. She's been changed from glory to glory. And you see a similar recognition 
visionary experience of the encounter with Jesus in another image that probably shows Mary Magdalene again in Blake's mind, the women, woman caught in adultery. And she is in a transitional moment too. She stands upright with her breast showing, but strikingly not ashamed in her face, although she's also bound with her hands tied behind her back. The figures who brought her to Jesus and tried to condemn her have already walked away. They've felt the condemnation in Jesus's words, the one without sin cast the first stone. And so this is the moment in which Mary, the woman caught in adultery, is freed from earthly condemnation and awaiting what that might mean. And it's shown so strikingly because Jesus also doesn't condemn her, but in Blake's image actually bows to her in a way when she might be the one bowing to him. He is recognising the human form divine in her, and that recognition awakens the realisation within her. And so Blake can show how that which is condemned in shame is now released in light, as he puts it in the Everlasting Gospel, another poem that reflects in part on the encounter with Mary Magdalene, that they may call a shame and sin love's temple that God dwelleth in, and hide in secret hidden shrine the naked human form divine. The resurrection is when that is hidden no more, when it can't be called sin anymore, but known as love's temple that God dwelleth in. Another really interesting feature about Blake's image of the woman caught in adultery is that Jesus is writing in in the dust, as the biblical account recalls, but writing in the dust after the condemners have turned away rather than while they're still present, as if he's musing. And I think that Blake puts it this way round because he writes for us. Jesus's pause before he writes in the dust, which is the moment caught in Blake's picture, is for our imaginations to write or not in the dust. We're invited into the moment of transition too. What is going to be written asks us to consider in ourselves what realisation is awakening for us. Maybe there'll be nothing written because there are no written codes anymore to condemn, which the woman, Mary, sees. And so realises not just that she has the human form divine too, but is free with that recognition. And so the phrase, go sin no more, is not, as it's often interpreted, go in and obey the rules that you've broken in the past. It's precisely the opposite. It's an explosion of imaginative possibility. Forget that whole business about sin. Step into the new life that's released now because she can start to see a new way to live, a new place to go, 
the eternal life that she has had highlighted within her in this encounter. So if that's prefiguring the resurrection during the life of Jesus, then in between comes the crucifixion. And Blake presents the crucifixion as the pivotal moment in which this kind of transformation, this kind of awakening, this visionary experience happens. He presents the crucifixion always with light emanating from the body of Jesus, particularly the head and the outspread arms. The cross is often presented as a tree with apples and life on it. And the figures that stand before the crucified Jesus often have their arms outspread too when they recognise what's going on on the cross because they are human figures mirroring the divine figure before them but also awakening the divine figure within them. In Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, loss, the figure of imagination or divine vision becomes Jesus. Imagination is transfigured, nature is awoken, nature is resurrection. This is about seeing something, not struggling to prove it. It's about seeing what John, in his gospel, calls the moment of Jesus being glorified as the moment when Jesus is on the cross. I think it's also why when Jesus looks down from the cross and says to Mary and John, behold thy mother, behold thy son, this is not just a touching detail, although it is that, it's also saying behold, step into this new way of life that's right before you right now. As Blake puts it in one of his lovely summaries of how we might live in this resurrected life, man was made for joy and woe, and when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. We experience joy, we experience woe in life, but when we rightly know of our experience, because we're rooted in our true nature, our true self, which is the divine nature, the divine self, we can safely navigate away through life regardless of whether joy or woe comes to us because we're not identified with the experience, but know our true awareness, the true presence of God that's within us, the kingdom of God that's within. It's such a different perception of life from secular living, worldly living, in another way, when the soldiers cast their lots for Jesus's gown, the greediness of this world is shown even before the cross that might present a different light. It's the desire again to prove and to possess. And yet Blake paints it paling alongside the transcendent light of the cross coming from the crucifixion. You can almost see the crucifixion in this moment as manifesting for us a kind of dream state when our true nature is forgotten, that imagines death is somehow the enemy, imagines that a miracle is needed or else just pausing before a mystery. And 
the crucifixion is dreamy because when you see that you're in a dream, that's the moment you wake up. You start to see not with the eyes as if the vegetable life was all that was real, but through the eyes to the eternal life that is shining radiant and present in all of life. Jesus then embraces the Magdalene as Blake describes in Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, when Jerusalem, the divine spirit within us, is at one, identified with Mary Magdalene, in fact. And she says, Art thou alive, and livest thou forevermore, or art thou not but a delusive shadow, a thought that liveth not? She's tussling in this moment with her transformation. But it is a moment of her evolution because she looks again and then says she can hear the truth of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. As Blake glosses that, Jesus says, I die and pass the limits of possibility. That's the invitation that the resurrection presents to us. That's the heart of Easter, according to William Blake. And so this pattern starts to appear in other ways in Blake's imagery. For example, his image of David delivered out of many waters, with David in the waters beneath bound down, choruses of angels appearing, and then Jesus coming down from the sky with arms outstretched in cruciform form, displays the crucifix again as a moment of eternal vision, because David in the waters has his arms outstretched, which he thought was because he was bound, but now sees, as he sees his true life mirrored in the figure of the resurrected Jesus, as eternal life. It's a play in Blake's image on Psalm 18, which was originally a psalm in which King David sings of his military victory because he was righteous and so had Yahweh on his side. Blake's saying, no, 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 this isn't really about some secular militaristic moment of triumph. It's a recognition that the soul is indeed righteous, that the human form divine does indeed dwell within us. And so we're with Christ already when Easter is experienced in this visionary sense. It leads to a glorious experience of the resurrection and the crucifixion leading as much to apocalypse as anything else. Apocalypse in the true sense, the unveiling of the truth. Although again, apocalypse has all these negative connotations now, I think because the visionary sense of it is not properly understood. It leads instead to what Blake calls a horrible fear of the future, um, which is Eurozones, this scientific approach to divine reality, the attempt to see, say, things through symbols or to interpret the times. And then the prophecies become condemnations of what's going on. Rules return. Moral law is imposed by the church, by Christianity, in attempts to try and control the future, to shape it through rules and threats. The fires of hell never far from this. What gets lost in all this dark apocalypse is, is the true unveiling, as a vision of the truth. Um, and for Blake, it's quite clear it's a universal salvation. 
all are saved, although even putting it like that is not quite right, rather all will come to know as they are known. They'll realise that creation is already full in the presence of God and what we're experiencing is the realisation of that eternal sense in time. And it's not just about all human beings be saved for Blake. It's also about the whole of the created order knowing its divine life, as he writes in another part of Vala, The Four Zoas. The sun has left his blackness and has found a fresher morning, and the mild moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night, and man walks forth from midst of the fires. The evil is all consumed. His eyes behold the angelic spheres, the stars arising night and day, the stars consumed like a lamp blown out, and in their stead behold the expanding eyes of man, behold the depths of wondrous worlds, one earth, one sea beneath, no erring globes wander, but stars of fire rise up nightly from the ocean, and one sun each morning like a newborn man issues with songs and joy. This is Blake showing how humanity has a pivotal place to play because our consciousness of these things presages the whole of creation becoming conscious of the divine light and so the stars are blown out as mere physical objects and instead become like the eyes of humanity. Wondrous worlds, the expanse of the cosmos is seen not as a dark nihilistic void but as the expanse of the divine life. And so this changes as well the sense of the resurrection of the body. The body comes to be known as a clothing of the divine form, as we experience it now as a kind of veil, um, a fallen vision of mental reality. Though, of course, the funny thing about a veil or the body is that whilst it conceals or also simultaneously reveals something of the true form, you know, like clothing, both covers, rendering opaque, but also promising beauty beneath the clothing. And this is Blake saying that even in fallen, mistaken appropriations of Easter life, the divine life still pushes through. You see it in a way in what happens with Jesus's clothing on the cross and how the soldiers greedily gamble for the clothing of the Christ, thinking they might use it themselves. But then the clothing is abandoned in the tomb as the radiant spiritual body appears. A true experience of the body reveals our souls. As Wittgenstein said, we don't approach each other as mere bodies, but as souls communicating, say, when making love. And inwardly, we know our bodies not as objects, but as the site of our most intimate subjectivity, the place where we can say, I am. And so the body becomes the place where the divine I am might be detected as well. Resurrection as vision, as unveiling in this way, is contagious. Blake says. He tries to spread it by giving us a golden thread to wind into a ball. 
by saying, behold. And the point about this is that when you start to see this vision, a kind of virtuous spiral of beholding can take hold of us, the upward power and thrust of the resurrection. What we behold shapes who we become, Blake observes, which has a negative moment when the resurrection is seen in the miraculous or mysterious way. We can get trapped in the scramble to prove it somehow happened or to peer through its darkness. But positively, of course, when you behold the vision, it draws you more and more into it. Putting on Christ becomes possible originally a theatrical metaphor like putting on a character and so immersing in Christ is to become united with Christ in the resurrection and as Blake says so many times it's about a mental fight to awaken it's about realizing something from within and then seeing it manifest without it's a fight that doesn't have enemies because it's not about contending for life it's about sharing life it's not about a victory in which someone else gets defeated, even death, but instead is about forgiveness when the arts that seemed deathly are recognised as arts of life. And so Blake says to the Christians in Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, what is mortality but the things related to the body which dies? What is immortality? but the things relating to the spirit which lives eternally. What is the joy of heaven, but improvement in the things of the spirit? What are the pains of hell, but ignorance, bodily lust, idleness, and devastation of the things of the spirit? This he identified as the risk of the way Easter tends to be talked about. It can lead to a devastation of the things of the spirit. It can lead to a mistaken notion of immortality rather than an improvement in the things of the Spirit leading to the joy of heaven. And so he concludes to the Christians on Easter. For hell is opened to heaven. Thine eyes beheld the dungeons burst and the prisoners set free. England, awake, awake, awake. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death, and closer from thy ancient walls? By hills and valleys felt her feet gently upon their bosoms move. Thy gates beheld sweet Zion's ways, then was a time of joy and love, and now the time returns again. O souls exult, and London's towers receive the Lamb of God to dwell in England's green and pleasant bowers.